Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure uh, to be here and to fill in for Hans and to warm up the pulpit for John for next week. Um, it's my privilege to be here. Well, in May 6, 2019, um, the world was abuzz as uh, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of England, had um, delivered her first baby, Archie. And for some reason, I get some of it, but Americans tend to be really involved in the royal family, and some, I would say, obsessed with the royal family. But leading up to it, if you can recall, um, internet was crazy. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing the news that a baby's going to be born. Well, we come to this great time of the year where we get to celebrate the birth of a baby. Far more important than Archie. um, But an incredible time of worship for us. So what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of a different approach. I was talking to Hans about how to preach this, I said, I had two things in mind, one very practical and one a little bit academic. And he said, go for the academic. So, <clears throat> so I'm going to ask you to, to put your listening ears on and to, to really um, walk with me through this. We're going to cover a lot. I'm going to get practical along the way. Um, but I want, to, I want to approach this Christmas narrative with the recognition that many times... Uh, when we come to the Christmas narrative in our culture, because our culture is becoming more and more post-Christian and anti-Christian, that we often come to it trying to look for responses to a skeptical culture. And sometimes when we do this, we miss the bigger picture. It's almost like looking at an action movie, and I love action movies, but it's like looking at an action movie and, and asking the question, could that really happen? I mean, we've all seen the movies, Bruce Willis or whoever it may be, that's just like, there's no way that's realistic, right? But if you focus in just on that, then you tend to miss the bigger picture of the whole story. That's sometimes what happens to us when we look at the biblical narratives and the the narrative of Jesus' birth because it often gets questioned because it involves the miraculous, And at other times when we look at this narrative, we come across some statements that maybe approach the biblical narrative and Jesus' story of his birth too simplistically. So we have some quotes that I wanted to look at. Here's some of them, and and I'm glad that I forgot who wrote some of them. There's some truth in them, and then there's some that I think are a little bit over the top. But here are some of the narratives. Here are some of the quotes. The events associated with the birth of Jesus fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies given centuries before the events they described. I'm okay with that. Here's the next one. Most of us have probably heard the story of the birth of Jesus. But what some may not realize is that his birth, right down to the last detail, was a fulfillment of thousands of Old Testament prophecies. We'll move on beyond that one. (laughs) It's amazing to discover that Jesus fulfilled more than 100 prophecies foretold 400 to 1,500 years before his birth. And this amazing event demonstrates God's infinite knowledge and power. He is capable of foretelling the future with perfect precision. 
And he has the power to bring his prophecies to pass. When I see quotes like that, sometimes part of me cringes just a little bit. And it's not that I don't believe that Jesus fulfills prophecies. It's not that I don't believe in the miraculous of what happened at the birth of Jesus. But I cringe a little bit because I think sometimes we've made the, how Jesus fulfills prophecies overly simplistic. When we have statements like this, I think what it gives the listener a view of is that somewhere along the line, the prophets were almost like crystal ball gazers. And they looked into this crystal ball and said, look, behold, God's going to bring forth his promised Messiah. And here's a statement about him. 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 And what I want to challenge us with today is perhaps let's revisit this simplistic approach to how we look at prophecy. Secondly... I want to, I hope to, to look at this passage and show how the miracle of Jesus' birth and the prophecy that we're going to look at today fits into the bigger picture. Not just simply to provide us an apologetic or a defense for the faith, but to show how it fits into God's greater plan and the nature of Jesus. I hope by the end of our time together, if we stay with me, that will develop a sense of awe and wonder of God's plan, of God's providence. And as we look at the Advent calendar, a sense of joy. And along our journey, I hope to challenge us with some specific applications. So Matthew chapter 2, let's turn there with me. I'm going to back up to the very beginning of Matthew 2. And there's a lot in this, and I'm not going to dwell on every single point that we could because I want to get us back to a Hosea 11. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, you're familiar with the story, but hopefully we'll get some, some unique perspective on this as well. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now pause there for a second. That might already be giving you some different perspective. I'm not sure where you guys are. Many are, are you know, if you're, how, where you're at with the Christmas story. Uh, certainly in the broader culture, in the pictures that we see in our manger scenes, you see the shepherds and you see the magi right next to each other. And it's, it's this idea that they all came on the same night when Jesus was born. And here is Matthew standing, st- uh, st- starting his 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 narrative in Matthew 2, and he says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Magi show up. So perhaps in our creches, in our manger scenes, we need to have Jesus, the baby, the shepherds, and then put, put the Magi like in another room. So they're making their way there. They don't get there the night he was born, but they'd show up later. Verse 2, when the Magi showed up, they came to Jerusalem. They're going, they, 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 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they show up in Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I want to spend a couple of minutes in the setting of this. What's the setting of the story? 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town. At the time when Jesus was born, it was probably less than a thousand people. Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem. And here are these magi that are traveling from the east. Uh, Most scholars think that they come from Babylon or Persia era. Some say that southern Arabia. But if they're coming from Babylon or from Persia, they're traveling. The the route that they would travel is roughly 900 miles. I think it's 500 miles if they were to cross the desert. 900 by going up and then bringing back down. 900 miles prior to the invention of cars, prior to the invention of planes, trains, automobiles, right? (laughs) Just watched that movie the other day. (laughs) That's a long journey. 20, 25 miles a day is the typical traveling standard. We're talking a three-month, four-month journey for these wise men to come to Jerusalem. They come... To Jerusalem, and we're introduced, it's during the time of King Herod. Now, we know Herod from the story, because we're going to see later on uh, his response. We see that Herod um, was cruel. Now, if we look back at a little bit of history, let's unpack Herod a little bit. Herod had convinced the Roman Senate to grant him authority over this region. He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. All right, let that sink in for a minute. Herod, most scholars will say, died in 4 B.C. Unfortunately, Dionysius got it wrong when he did his... This is ironic. I was reading this this week. Dionysius is the one who came up, gave us our timing system for A.D. and B.C. Uh, He was tracking the ruler at this time, and he said, this ruler... this." you know, ruled this how many years after the birth of Jesus. He was actually a math teacher, which makes it ironic, but his dating was wrong. So he had intended to say that 1 AD was the year of our Lord when Jesus was born, but his dates were off by a few years. So really Jesus was born at the very uh, latest 4 BC. Some would push it even all the way to 6 BC. Um, But somewhere in that region is when Jesus was born. Herod, his territory that he oversaw was a mixture of both Jewish and non-Jewish areas. There was some religious tension within the realm that he oversaw. He was severely disliked by the Jewish people because he wasn't faithful to Judaism. He would build things for the, for the Jews, but then he also built, built Roman temples too. And you can imagine a faithful Jew, here is your king who's building structures for the Romans. And temples for the Romans. He ruled with an iron fist. He was harsh. In fact, if you were to read Josephus, the first century historian, he has this quote and he says of Herod, he was of great barbarity towards all men equally. He was a slave to his own passions, but above the consideration of what was right. Herod didn't have a great reputation. In fact, uh, you know, part of the challenge that he faced was he didn't have a legal right to the throne of Israel. Uh, his mother was Nabataean. His father was Idumean. He was not stemming. He's not, he was not really a Jewish person. He converted to Judaism. His family converted to Judaism. He was paranoid. He always thought somebody was taking over the throne. He, has, he kills one of his own wives. 
He killed several of his own sons, other relatives. And here is Herod when he knew he was going to die. This is, this is how barbaric he was. When he knew that his deathbed was imminent, he had some prominent Jewish people killed just before he died. So that the land would mourn because he knew that the land wouldn't mourn when he died. But he wanted people to be mourning. So he said, here, take these other Jewish people and kill them so that everybody would be in mourning when I die. That's Herod. So when the Magi show up on the scene in Matthew chapter 2 and they're saying, where is he that's been born king of the Jews? For a paranoid man, you can imagine what's running through his mind. You can imagine... Uh, really what, what he wants to do. <clears throat> the Magi, coming from the east, probably associated some form of astrologers, they show up with the purpose of looking to worship. Their question, what, what, when they ask, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? In verse 3, we find out that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Of course. Here is somebody asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And I know that I don't have the legal right to the throne. And I know that I, don't, I want to kill off everybody who's threatening my kingship. And it also says, in all Jerusalem with him. So when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Beth, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be my shepherd, be the shepherd of my people, Israel. They're quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This small, insignificant village at the time, now, now truth be told, Bethlehem had some rich history. You know, David was born in Bethlehem. The story and the setting of, of, of Ruth and Boaz, Bethlehem. But by the time you hit the first century, it's relatively insignificant from a political standpoint. In fact, Benj Foreman, who's, who was a tour guide, was one of our tour guides in Israel, this is what he wrote. He said, born to an unassuming family in an unconventional dwelling in an insignificant village... Jesus grew up in an unremarkable town and came to serve, not to be served. He was a humble king, a suffering servant, not a conquering emperor. How radically different of a king was Jesus than Herod? So Herod comes and develops this devious plot. Verse 7. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Sounds great. But what we know is that that was not Herod's intentions. The, arrival, the, the, the Magi arrive, verse 9, and when they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Some miraculous format of what's going on here. They're following a star, and the star kind of, in some way, guides them to the house where the child was. Again, no longer little baby, no longer in the manger. They're coming to the house where the child was. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. 
So I want to pause for a minute, right? What I love about this, having grown up in Catholicism, um, and there is, a, there is a stream of Catholicism that, that was saying that Mary is a co-redeemer, right? Kind of ex, an extreme position of Mary out there, that she ought to be worshipped. Not just honored, but worshipped as a co-redeemer with Jesus. Well, here is a clear correction of that mindset. Here the wise men come, they see the mother and the child, but they only worship the child. But with that, they give gifts. Now, I kind of want to pause here because in chapel the other day, I, I guess it was two weeks ago, I challenged our students to think about gifts. This is a season in which every, kids tend to love gifts. And there's nothing wrong with giving. There's nothing wrong with receiving. But my challenge to them was, here were the magi that came and they brought gifts to Jesus. Why don't we take, and this was the end of November in our chapel that we did this. Why don't we take from now until Christmas Day and think about every day, what's a gift that we can give Jesus? So that's the challenge I want to give us today. What is a gift from now, what's today, December 11th, until Christmas, every day, what is a gift that you can give Christ? Jesus often said, what you do to the least of my brethren, you do unto me. What can you do sacrificially to be a blessing in Jesus' name? So I'll tell you how it worked out for me the first day after I gave this challenge, or I think it was, it was the first day after this challenge. I went to my doctor's appointment. <clears throat> my doc, I, I met my doctor there before he opened. He got in there. He had coffee, a big box of coffee that he had to make in his hands. He goes into this coffee, into his, into his place to make it, and he can't find one of the pieces for the coffee maker, so he can't make the coffee. So he said, I'll just find a time later on today, and I'll make the coffee. And, and meanwhile, he kept alluding to missing his coffee while we were <laughs> meeting. He gets done seeing me. We go out, and he's got three or four other patients in his, in his area. And I was like, man, he's already swamped. So I start driving away. And because of that, my challenge to the students, the Lord kind of brought it to my memory. What are you going to do as a gift for Jesus during this time? So I'm three or four miles away from the office. The closest coffee place is probably five miles from the doctor's office. I just, the Lord just put it up on my heart to buy him a coffee, to take it back to, the, to his office and just give him a coffee. He wasn't there. He's back in the room with the patient, but I left it there. And the next patient up says, I'll let him know that he's got coffee here. He sent me a text later and said, that random act of kindness had me smiling all day. And that was a sample we'd been talking even during the, 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 you know, asking about what I do for a living, asking all of those things, planting seeds. I do think he's a believer already. But, but whatever the situation may be, my challenge to you is think of every day, you know, what can you do as a gift to Jesus? Can it be washing the dishes? What not without being asked? Can <laughs> Can it be something that you just say every day, put it on your mind and say, what am I going to do as a gift to Christ, as an act of worship? He's not here for me to necessarily lay down my gold, my frankincense, my myrrh. It can be a gift financial. You could say, here's a ministry in need, here's a person in need, and I'm going to give towards that end. 
But what can you do from now until Christmas, every day, it's my challenge, to give a gift. Our, I, I go back, um, we have one of our, our logic school teachers, 7th, 8th grade teacher sitting right here in the front row. I go back to that logic school building where they meet right now. Right now, if you were to go down the hallways, you would see these strings of paper that are red, green, that just stringed up like it's, like it's garland going out throughout the hallway. Each one of those pieces of paper is written by a student that says, this is a gift that I gave to Christ this day. And they're, they're packing it up and they're going on and on and on. And, and it's humbling to see it, but it's also joyous to see. Here, here, are, here are students that, are, uh, that are, are, are hearing this message from the world that Christmas is all about you. But now they're living it out day by day and giving a gift to Christ. And I got to read some of those. And it was great to see. One of them said, I sat down with the student that normally um, I don't sit with at lunch just to get to know the person. That's great. Right? Um, so the wise men came to worship. Now, we know how the story is going to progress. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So here is Joseph, warned in a dream by an angel. Joseph obeyed and goes into Egypt. If we, if we say Alexandria, Egypt, that's a 350-mile travel. That's a good distance. So how did this poor family make it from, from Bethlehem down to Egypt? From the gifts of the Magi. They brought these very practical, expensive gifts that supported Jesus' family, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, on their travel routes. Now, in doing so, Matthew makes this statement, and this is where I want to uh, take off a little bit, that, and so was fulfilled when Jesus left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's a quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So keep your finger in Matthew, but we're going to spend the next few minutes in Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. And I may even read a couple of verses from other parts of Hosea before we get to Hosea 11. Now I need to set this, give you the setting of Hosea. You guys bearing with me? I know we're doing some, some historical teaching here. You guys, you good? All right, Hosea chapter 11, you have Israel in their divided kingdom era. Remember, Israel was called up out of Egypt, led by Moses. Remember, Moses is going to challenge them with the Ten Commandments. He's going to challenge them with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, that you ought to have no other gods before Jesus, I mean, except for Yahweh, right? No other gods but Yahweh. When you come into the land, don't worship the Canaanite gods. Stay faithful to me. We know Israel failed in that area, in that era, area. By the time we get to Hosea's writing, we're looking at 8th century BC. Israel had split. No longer did they have one king. They had a king in the north and a king, king in the south. Ten of the tribes were in the north, two of the tribes in the south. In the north, 
Hosea is bringing a message to primarily that audience in the north. And, if before, and again, stay in Hosea 11.1. 1. I'm going to read you a passage from Hosea, 11, uh, Hosea 2 first, and this will give you an idea of what's going on. Hosea 2, verse 8. She has not acknowledged, she being Israel, she has not, and, and particularly Gomer as a representative of Israel, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they... Used for Baal. Here in the 8th century, Israel was in a, in, a, in a spiritual state of apostasy. Prior to, to the king at this time, Jeroboam II, prior to, to this king at this time, the, the former Israelite king during the Amorite dynasty had made Baalism Israel's prominent, the national religion. Until Jehu wiped them out and said, let's get the Baals out. But then they still kept worshiping Baal. Baal was a fertility god. God of the rain. And, and what God is saying is that I gave them grain. I gave them grain. I gave them gold. I gave them silver. And they used those things for the worship of another deity. Chapter 9, verse 10. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing that they loved. Here, by the time Hosea is writing, the nation was in apostasy. So when we get to Hosea 11.1... We're going to see this is the passage from which Matthew quotes. Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Here we, we come to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And if we're just reading Isaiah within, or, or I'm sorry, Hosea within its context, there doesn't seem to be a hint of any messia, uh, messianic prophecy here. In fact, when we look at this, the son is defined in Hosea 11. Who is the son? When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more that I called my son, the more that they went away from me. Hosea 11 seems to portray that the son was Israel. Yahweh called the son out of Egypt called Israel out of Egypt. Who was that son? Israel. Where was Egypt? When did Yahweh call them out of Egypt? Through Moses, through the Exodus. And yet they turned away from him. So we see as a result of that in verse 5, when uh, will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, and and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. 
Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. Their disobedience was going to lead to judgment. He says, you're going to go back to Egypt by way of Assyria. It was really, I mean, I think Egypt is probably typological of saying, the Assyrians are going to take you back into captivity. It'll be a new Egypt. But yet, in verse 8, like a father and a child, we see that God was, had, was, was, was perplexed or was, was struggling over this. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebuim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce angle, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will, uh, they, and, and then he'll pick up in verse 10. He basically says, look, you deserve judgment. You deserve to be annihilated and wiped out. But like a father with this child who may be frustrated with their child and disappointed in their child, struggles to give up on the child. And as a result, says, I won't wipe you away. In fact, he's going to restore them in verse 10. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, he will, uh, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. There will be a time when Israel will be, Israel will be restored to the land. So here's a summary. God was gracious. Israel was a child, but the son rebelled. As a result of the rebellion, the rebellion leads to exile. But the father's going to have compassion, and that compassion will lead to mercy. And Israel will be restored. So here's the new conflict in our story today. How is this a fulfillment of prophecy? If the, if the conflict in the Matthew 2 story was Herod's desire and plot to kill the baby, how was Jesus going to escape? The conflict now is, perhaps we could say, if we took a simplistic approach to prophecy, did Matthew misread Hosea? Which probably makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Hopefully makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? That's, that's the challenge that I think we might have. And I would say... Even if you don't have the answer yet, and I'm going to hopefully give you an answer that's going to satisfy and calm you down a little bit. But even if you didn't, what we have seen is that God's word is true and trustworthy. When we come to the scriptures, um, there are several barriers that we have to overcome. God's word is true, and we do have to respond in faith, even if we don't know all the answers. We just got to dig a little harder. Right? I mentioned our teacher here, Mr. Curdo, he teaches our seventh graders how to, read the, how to read the scriptures, how to interpret the scriptures. Uh, digging in, how do you, we call it the study of hermeneutics. It's, it's setting our students up, setting us up for a lifetime of the study of scriptures. So what I want us to do is to kind of put ourselves back. We're going to drop back into the ancient world and we're going to read Matthew from Matthew's original audience's perspective, and I think we'll get an answer to this problem. Now, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. By the time of the first century, there's a, a, a first century anticipation of the Jewish Messiah. They're expecting the Messiah to come. In fact, I, I, I have a slide here of a, 
of a cave uh, called, it's called Cave Number 4 in Qumran. Um, if you, are you guys familiar with the phrase Dead Sea Scrolls? You heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? This is one of the caves, this Cave 4 is one of the caves in which um, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the, the history behind this is you had uh, a shepherd throw a rock into a cave, Cave Number 1, um, and heard a crash. A piece of pottery crashed. So he followed up with that crash and went in and found, found um, uh, uh, vessels, uh, wine, wine containers, um, uh, pithoi, I think is what they call them. They, he, he looks into there and he opens them up and he finds scrolls. And that started this whole Dead Sea Scroll excavations and findings. Here in K4, they found a scroll called 4Q174. It's from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. And I want to read one thing because it's, it's going to help us, I think, a little bit. Here's a quote that comes from this section. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make a house um, <clears throat> and that I will raise up your offering after you and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be my son. This passage refers to the shoot of David who is to arise with the interpreter of the law. Those in the Qumran community, you could, you know, they were looking forward to a Messiah coming. In fact, scholars would say that in the Qumran community, they were expecting if you were two Messiahs. One Messiah would be this reigning king, descendant of David. The other one would be a teacher of the law, somebody who could rightly interpret the law. So this was a fervor. This is a sample of the fervor that was going on in the time of Jesus shows up. They're expecting a Messiah to come. And here in Matthew, when, when Matthew shows up and writes, he's writing to this Jewish audience. What he wants them to, to see is, you are expecting a Messiah? Jesus meets the qualifications for your Messiah. He is your king. Chapters 1 through 4, here's the king's announcements, his arrival, his message starts in chapter 5. Starting in chapter 16, we see that the king was oppressed and rejected, leading ultimately to his crucifixion. And then in chapter 28, here is the king's resurrection, his victory or his triumph, if you were, and his commission. Matthew is going to be writing to, to tell his audience, Jesus is your king. So to a primarily Jewish audience, would you think that Matthew would pick a passage of Scripture that's really talking about Israel and not the Messiah? Would not his audience simply say, well, of course you're wrong. You just misread Hosea. Or is Matthew doing something a little bit more? And I would beg to say that he's doing something a little bit more. Let's play a word game, word association, because sometimes what we will do, we will associate somebody's name with an organization. If I were to say Jose Altuve, you would say what organization? Astros. If I were to say Michael Jordan, you would say the Chicago Bulls. If I were to say Jerry Jones, boo, you would say. <laughs> if I were to say George Washington, America, right? If I were to say Napoleon, France. If I were to say Moses, what nation would you put Moses with? Israelites, right? 
In life, whether we see, in life when we see a person, whether it be with a sports team or a nation, sometimes we will associate a person as the representative of that people. Like Moses, what I think Matthew is doing, Matthew is going to say that here is Jesus, he is your representative. If Moses was the representative of Israel, Jesus is even more your king. He, he even meets the qualifications above Moses. But he's going to make these parallels between Jesus and Moses. Think about this for a minute. When Moses was born, Moses had to narrowly escape death from the Pharaoh who was wanting to kill all new Jewish boys. In fact, Moses had to flee away from Egypt from a murderous king. Jesus has to flee to Egypt. And ironically, his murderous king is the king of Israel. Like Moses, Jesus gave the law from a mountain. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse through se- uh, 5 through 7. Moses performs miracles. Does not Jesus perform miracles? Moses sends out 12 spies to, to, to look over the land to see, uh, you know, what is the land like when we come in to conquer it? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to go conquer the land by casting out demons. Moses fed the multitudes with manna from heaven. What does Jesus do? He feeds the multitudes with bread and fish. When Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, Moses even shows up in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus was taking Moses' model of leadership and he was reliving it at an even greater level. If you trust Moses and you're going to say Moses is your representative of your nation, uh, you need to look at Jesus and look at his qualifications is what what Matthew's going to say. Moses was was the one who God inaugurated the Mosaic Covenant through. Jesus comes and what's Jesus going to inaugurate? The New Covenant. Jesus is an even greater Moses. But beyond just Moses, Jesus is going to identify himself with the nation of Israel and Israel's experiences. If you would, I would say Jesus is, Matthew portrays Jesus as the ideal Israel. Think about this. We talked about Israel's disobedience. And when Israel, um, when Israel came out of Egypt, um, They went into Egypt and they came out of Egypt in what we would say is the Exodus. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew has Jesus coming out of Egypt. After the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were faced with the Red or the Reed Sea. When you look at Jewish literature, and we even see this in in the Apostle Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 10-2, Israel or the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, was considered Israel's baptism. They were baptized with Moses at the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. What's the next thing that Matthew has Jesus doing after he comes out of Egypt? Matthew 2 comes out of Egypt. Matthew 3, what does Jesus do? He gets baptized. We have this parallel that's starting to happen. The nation of Israel's doing something and Jesus is reliving their experiences. Then what happens with the nation of Israel after they hit the Red Sea? They're in the area called the wilderness. How long are they in the wilderness? For how many years? They're there for 40 years. Why are they there for 40 years? Because when they're tested, they fail. How long? What's the next thing that Matthew's going to do in his gospel? 
Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes where? After his baptism, he goes into the wilderness. How long is he in the wilderness? 40 days. What happens when he's tested? Does he fail or does he pass? He passes the test. See, see, I think we've got this too simplistic approach of prophecy where it's not just this crystal ball approach. This is much, much more than that. And it's much more joyous. Here is Jesus. Reliving the, the national experiences of the nation of Israel. He's going to go into Egypt and come out of Egypt like the nation did. He's going to be baptized like the nation was. He's going to be tested in the wilderness like the nation was. The one key difference, he's perfect. He passes the test. And because he passes the test, he can be your representative Israel. He is your king is what Matthew's trying to say. He is everything that the nation of Israel was supposed to be. Yet they failed. This is much greater than some cryptic foretelling of, a, of where the Messiah is going to come. He is the fulfillment of our hope. That's who Christ is. It's, it's, you know, what I hope as a result of this is that you're coming out with a sense of awe. That God in his providence has some, done something that blows my mind. That in the providence of history, God is recapitulating history. He is reliving history. And it's no mere coincidence that Jesus is going to relive some of the things that Moses does. And he's going to relive the experiences of Israel. He is, if, if, if Israel as a nation was God's son, yet disobedient, Jesus is God's son, perfect and obedient. And because of his obedience, we can tie it into God's plan. He came for a purpose, not just to fulfill some cryptic message of prophecy but for the purpose of being redeemer of being king that's why Matthew can say here is your king Israel follow him he came for humanity humanity fails Jesus succeeds he obeys the king and thus fulfills his meaning you know you recognize that the name of Jesus Yeshua means Yahweh saves because he was rejected and killed at the cross, he then saves. And out of that, the king is triumphant in his resurrection, but gives a calling to those who follow him. What is the calling? Matthew 28. To go and make disciples. First Peter says it's to be a royal priesthood. So here's my one challenge before we leave. I want you to think about this from the original audience's perspective. If you are a first century Jewish person reading Matthew's gospel, what decision are you faced with? Your leadership rejected Jesus. Rejected him to the point that they put him on the cross. Now you, Matthew, wants his readership to recognize this is what your leadership did. In fact, your leadership, when the, when the Magi came, wouldn't even travel five miles to go see the baby that was born king of the Jews. The Magi traveled 900 miles. Your leadership wouldn't travel five miles. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to continue to follow your leadership who rejected Jesus as a Messiah? Or 
Are you going to recognize that God is reliving history and doing something new? And that Jesus is your king. He is your representative. He is your savior. He is your Lord. And if you are to follow that, then you have to recognize that God's work and you need to follow him. God's at work through Jesus and you need to follow him. Because of who Christ is and my challenge to us as we read the gospel from the Jewish perspective is will we do the same? Will we surrender to the spirit of God, become transformed and faithfully carry out our calling? May we at this Christmas season, yes, may we get a a greater sense of awe and wonder. May we come and worship like the Magi did. But that coming and worship ultimately comes in surrendering, bowing the knee and following him. And following him and carrying out the calling for which he gives us. I pray that this Christmas season, as we reread the story of Jesus being born in a manger... That is more than just a story, but it's something that leads us to worship. Amen.